0: I'd like to invite you on a walk with tea.
1: I had a conversation today with a person who organized effective altruism forum or conference, and multiple other organizations or communities that relate to Rationalist and effective altruist and uh, hackathons, so people who broadly share different values of technology-inspired development and future thinking. And in the during the dialogue, we touched the. Uh, Contemplative traditions or meditation and he's doing various forms of meditation for more than 15 years and I ask him this dichotomy about the dichotomy uh, of being present and acceptive of the moment of total acceptance and simultaneously being forceful and vital in pursuits, so effective and uh, passionate. And how he solved this problem given such experience, and he mentioned that a lot of his friends involved in organizations that both teach meditation and kind of do this weird fast track to, to reach samadhi or to reach nirvana, and some of them are apparently effective in that. I don't know how much of that true, but he he seemed like a person who's into this uh, domain of knowledge. And he said that there is this weird edge and there is no good answer to this question, but how he answering this question and how he he finds people who highly effective and productive in the world find this uh, solution to that, that you need to stop at some point of developing practice, because if you go deeper, you disconnect from the world. And this stop, this point, is not very trivial to find, but most kind of highly achievers in the world that change the humanity so that both are present in modernity, do things. They practice some forms of contemplative practices, but they purposefully do not go deeper. And that's what was my intuitive feel all of the time in our previous dialogues, that I felt that there is this deep, incon- irreconcilable like, void between being attuned to doing something or being completely content with, with what is. And you can be content with what, with what is and accepting and do some action, do some real good, love and kindness in the world, or even pursue knowledge but there would be no structure to that. There would be no visible, very like violent and vital, violent in a good sense, pursuit of, of good. Um, and that's, that was a theme of, of today's contemplation of mine, that whether there is a good heuristics, how to find that balance. And another question that was more pertinent to me, that do... I need personally to find that balance because in most of my cognitive pursuits or self-experimentation or work with psychedelics, I didn't want to find stop. I wanted to push the button to the very end, to the edge of, of possible. Uh, in terms of uh, free energy principle, I want to test that boundary where I'm almost dying. Uh, and with some of those practices, it's. It's very attractive and that's if we were to explore all possibilities of human conditions, that's what I would like to do, including meditation or contemplation. So it's a it's additional paradox out of this. I got some answer from from a person who at least I put one, one point on the map from a person who's working with that, uh, and now this question tickles me and um i'm on the verge of more exploration and i'm excited to find what's what's known about this edge and how how exactly people get into this edge how how they know here i need to stop because i will disconnect and be too content or too unpredictable maybe too silly in a in a way of some ancient wise people what what do you feel about this edge
0: Uh, i think colton found it for himself, recently, as in earlier this year, where he sensed that he was on the edge and that if he had gone further, then he would not have been able to meet the responsibilities that he has with his company uh, and and with his friend and, and other everyday things. And so, He felt the edge and didn't go further than that edge. But
1: I think he came right up to it. What kind of practices led him to that? So I think
0: he's done various sorts of meditative practices. And he went to some program... uh, I think, either in Los Angeles or the Bay Area, that was, I forget what it's called, but it was created by Westerners in the 90s or something, as because one of them had gone through more traditional meditative practices, and then you know how uh, people synthesize things and repackage things, so I think this group had repackaged um, some meditative practices and they turned it into a course, and so, at his last company, they paid for that
1: co- course, for, for the staff to go to? Uh-huh. Was it named Founder's Course? I think
0: that might have been it. Yeah.
1: This person suggested me to work with them, uh-huh. and that's this person's friends, allegedly. And he says that these people, they most effectively push you to Samadhi uh-huh. or Nirvana, and most people who stay there and decide they can get there, like 80% mm-hmm. by his mm-hmm. description. So...
0: I've seen that, um, and I believe that just reading about Ayla's experiences with acid that she came to some point similarly and chose completely to step away at some point. Um, I feel like this perception in itself comes from a certain sort of renunciative practice like the when when you have meditative practices that are situated in some sort of tradition that is based on like giving things up which is not i think the the only path it's just the path that in the 19th century when easterners came up against western society what they gave to western society was a repackaged version for westerners and so they picked things that would go i think more naturally with like both christianity and the, the scientific tradition so that it would so that they would appear civilized as well um and I think this is the reason why you have people who call Buddhist, Buddhism an atheist religion, which you can sort of say that, uh, but I think you could also say that it is a religion that doesn't believe that most people exist. <laughs> in that. And so then what are you, uh, what are you getting at? Uh, because if you look at how it's practiced in a lot of other countries... They are very clearly gods that are being prayed to, and yeah, that, would, that is acknowledged as illusion, theologically, but it's still as real as yourself.
1: Do you mean the form of practice that was removing things from awareness was focused more on emptiness rather than ever encompassing inclusion of everything? Um,
0: in a sense, yeah, or I guess from the Buddhist side, though this is married somewhat also, I think, in other traditions, that, yeah, that it focuses on simplifying awareness rather than making it more fractal. Um... And I think in Tantric Buddhism, the idea is that you can reach emptiness even if you are playing with form in that way. So even if you're going in the opposite direction, you can still get to the same point of emptiness, but it's different from if you're just trying to cut things out or if you notice yourself trying, you stop trying and, and you let go. And I suspect that part of that is also fit. Like, that from the point of view of some of those Eastern lineages, Westerners are already so rigid and full of, like, form and full of uh, this hardness to uh, our thinking that if you had given a Westerner this in the past, it would have been too easy for them to mistake what they were given for what they were already doing or to mistake what they're doing for what they were given like so you get to the form and uh, I guess you could call it like a heavenly state right Um, like one of those states in Buddhism so you get to that state and then you mistake that for enlightenment And then you get attached to that state. Uh, And I think maybe it was probably considered too easy for Westerners to
1: fall into that trap. You mean some state that is blissful but not more developed, for the lack of a better term? Because Uh, there is no end to states so they they might at least to how I how I understand descriptions that converge from multiple contemplative practices it's always some sort of development of additional qualities but no one knows where the difference of those states uh, and potentially there is no end Um, and the what what you describe or what those people who were transferring knowledge were aiming for is to get Westerners to content state, to mm-hmm. blissful state, mm-hmm. but state that removes removes them from being active agents in the world yep. and potentially causing less harm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone did this fully consciously on their own, but it's you know the the environment they're in, the times they're in, the pressures that they are subject to. Uh, And then, you know, for example, if you talk about using feasting as a method to get to some sort of realization or using sex as a method to get to some sort of realization or even using violence as a method to get to some sort of realization, that it would be too easy for... Westerners to misunderstand and also really easy for them to dismiss the local culture as like pagan and heathen and you know like barbaric and so that they like people would have hidden those aspects a little bit more from the people they were teaching to and from the people that they were spreading uh, whatever knowledge they have to this is kind of similar to I don't know if you've ever read the poems of Rumi as translated by Coleman Barks.
1: I don't think so.
0: So he's a translator of Rumi and the way he translates Rumi it sounds very almost like romantic uh, and sometimes downright sexual and it doesn't it's like it takes away all the openly muslim elements as well and this is actually one of the reasons why uh when i put out my version of the Tao Te ching i put my name on it first instead of laoziz because I'm, it's not like a faithful translation i'm not trying to be like have it be a literal translation it's like this is what i got out of it and i am now giving that to the world Uh, in a format that makes sense I think for more people that would never read the doubt aging normally Uh, and I think Coleman Barks did that for Rumi and so he introduced many people to Rumi but it's also very very different from the source material and like a completely different context because when you remove Allah from Rumi it's kind of it's just kind of weird. <laughs> uh, and I think there was things going on that are similar for all these practices. Uh, recently, I've been thinking about how companies are pushing mindfulness. And the way mindfulness is taught is almost like this... They take this giant rich series of practices and you turn it into something that's close to a drug or a pill. And I think the issue with that is that instead of serving the end, serving the purpose that those practices serve, it is being used as some sort of symptomatic treatment to allow people to serve whatever function our companies and institutions have to make more products and to sell more things and to consume things. And it can only do that by removing all these pieces. Uh, and I suspect that a lot of meditation in the West follows this this pattern. Um, where it is giving it's giving you the tools from this other way of being so that you can do whatever you're doing better but it's not it's not letting you experience the whole thing and then that allows you to stay attached To whatever you're doing. However, I actually don't think that that means you end up in a lack of action. Um, I think, you know, when I first heard about (laughs) non-doing, when I was a teenager, that's what I, I thought. It's like, oh, you just turned into a rock. But I actually think it's more like the zombies in Peter Watt's like Blindsight or Echopraxia, yeah. where you get better at action. It's just that you're not experiencing the pushing to action internally. But in order to get there what happens afterwards, it does change, like your, your, your previous optima are not going to be optima anymore. Uh, like if I go back in time and talk to my younger self who's like 17 or 18 about what they want, the object level of what they want they would not get if they knew everything I knew. So if I transfer all that information to them, they might not want it and they might reject it because, you know, say someone's hungry and uh, they say they want McDonald's, but then you cook a burger for them instead, they may not like it or they might reject it because they want McDonald's. Uh, But once they have a better understanding of themselves, they might realize that they just want some sort of protein, and they might actually like something with uh, more diversity within it than what McDonald's has to offer. But then by that time, the part that wanted the original McDonald's is disappointed. It does not get to do what it wants in the end. So, I think there's usually something like that happening, and it's true that you would not, like, so if you get to that age and you go over, it's true that you would probably have to give up everything. Like, it, subjectively speaking, like, what it feels like to that part is you're giving up everything, and you don't, like, you can't do all the things you wanted to do anymore, because you won't want to. Uh, but that doesn't mean that nothing happens after. I think it's just that suddenly what you want changes very, very dramatically.
1: In the case with McDonald's, do you connect it with ability to recognize pain or necessity for pain and discontent or maybe? dissatisfaction as a as a tool for for flourishing example would be if you have greater self-knowledge and you realize that pain is needed for growth and flourishing and you realize discontent with not getting McDonald's you look for something that is more diverse Mm -hmm. if you learn that diversity comes with pain but it's a It's a tool for growth. So then you incorporate this pain right away into whatever you do next, because it's always painful not to receive what you want. Mm -hmm. You are clinging to things, to my understanding, always, regardless at what level of enlightenment you are. Mm -hmm. And if you every time notice this recognition of pain and walk towards it, with open heart and and just accept it, with with that intent of pain gives you growth. Um, it's like a tool. Y- yeah,
0: I I do think it's a like you you would then recognize pain as something necessary for a living and necessary for flourishing. However, I feel like there's... Like, so you're always clinging to something, and I think that if you realize that you're always clinging to something, you can just accept the clinging that you are currently doing while knowing that you are clinging. And then that makes it easier to let go, but the point is not to let go
1: if you let it go, you remove the pain. And if you come, do I understand your current stance that pain is necessary for flourishing? Mm-hmm. And removing pain is harming flourishing, long-term flourishing?
0: Yes, In the so the flourishing that I'm thinking about there is definitely closer to the, like, like the Greek tradition of flourishing and less less with the Eastern tradition, only because I find it harder to
1: pin down the Eastern tradition of flourishing. How would you put Greek tradition of flourishing in the shortest terms? Living a full life? And fool what, what does fool mean
0: it's a sort of contentment that I think comes from realizing what is going on so basically and this is why I think pain is necessary from that point of view is that when you think about what makes you sad or what you grieve for all this stuff is information that fills you up so the the grief is painful because it's information that you're carrying inside you and I think that that is something that makes you feel so that everything that you are meeting in your life is also inside you. And because of that, you the separation between you and the
1: rest of existence is much narrower. So far, it seems very similar to Eastern traditions. Mm-hmm. Oneness of awareness or perception mm-hmm. that incorporates both pain or things that cause unsatisfaction mm-hmm. and things that, that cause some blissful states or, or positive states and everything in between. Do you see this flourishing in more Greek fashion? Related to pursuits of knowledge, if we if we put it maybe as an increase in degrees of freedom, mm-hmm. for example, uh, would it be or uh, maybe put some additional spin on this f- uh, living a full life perspective? I want to understand it fuller, like what it would encompass. It's
0: I think in, in, in all the schools, it does come to some sort of balance between between all the competing wants that you come across and and the, the pain of living. so, If you, like if I push you here, and you react very strongly with a lot of force, that will probably put you further out of balance, but if you sort of go with the push, there's a good chance that you will stay much more balanced. And I think there's something like this for living in general in the Greek version, and they would call this something like virtue, or a good... Sometimes when they describe virtue, they describe things that are considered virtues, but whoever is doing the describing probably does not consider that the highest virtue. So accepting that, I think when they're talking about virtue that you might find useful, or virtue, virtue that is good to have. That they are talking about this kind of virtue, that is some sort of ability to roll with what life has to offer, and to appreciate it, and to find it beautiful.
1: Acceptance in the words of Eastern traditions.
0: Yeah, I think so. Something that comes as a result of acceptance.
1: Do you see value in values? Do you have some definition or desire to have values? And if you do, what, what are those that the most core values in, in, in this flavor that we just discussed? I see values as
0: something that we want, like something something that you want. And at any given time, it appears that I want things. So I would say I always have some sort of values. Um, and I find values useful because I have used them. And everyone I know has used them, for the most part. I'm sure maybe there are people Uh, This is the other issue with spirituality is that I feel I, I actually think this is all skills. The lower you are progressed in a skill, the harder it is to tell when someone is very, very good at that skill, unless someone slightly above you admires them for their skill, and then the people above that admire. Like, you have to look slightly above you on the ladder (laughs) but if you looked at the top rung in the ladder if it's not like something obvious like you know that you can make a bet with it's hard to it's hard to recognize and i think in spirituality this is extremely true where if people are going around without values that they would be very hard to detect to someone with values so I guess my values seem to be whatever values are necessary to do whatever I'm doing at that point
1: in space and time. Do you see them rapidly changing or how, how often they change? I think the core, if, uh-huh. if, we'll, if we'll take only the most prominent ones. So I think at first it was in years,
0: but you know, like say five years or something like that. But I think over time, as I get older, this this change changing period shrinks smaller and smaller. Um, and I think now I'm on I'm on months.
1: Could you point current ones and maybe a couple of previous months? Mm-hmm. So I think it is currently
0: balance, and before this, it was gentleness. And what was before gentleness? I guess I, I come back and forth to acceptance, but maybe, oh, recognition of oneness was before gentleness. And then before that, aggression. Uh, Aggression in a sense of pushing on the world, or like, uh, you know, uh, like a bias for action.
1: Do you see them as things that are? good to promote outside of yourselves in each of those moments or you treat them as a as a very local object phenomena so
0: previously I definitely sent them along Like, I I definitely, whenever I was on about something, I would push it out as well, or or pass it on, try to pass it on. And I think I still pass it on, like, even now. uh, I may be sneakier in how I pass it on. Probably less and it may be that I'm more effective at passing it on because I'm sneakier at passing passing it on. I'm not sure. But it does seem like I I do pass or attempt to pass it on when I have it.
1: Do you operate some sort of binary in values, like goodness and evil, for example?
0: Mm-hmm. I I believe I have those within me, which is how I can tell when people have them. Uh, And I definitely had them when I was younger. Um, The last... Probably the last set, the last like very persistent version of that was useful and not useful. Um, But I believe they are backward compatible. In a sense that I can at any point summon them up or they will come up in me. I think it's just that whatever previous binary I had, once I have come out of identifying with it, it's more like some extra sense or two, like, you know, I have this finger, I have this finger, I have this finger. Uh, I don't always use them, but sometimes when I need to use them, I use them. I I believe at the moment I don't have I don't personally have a use for good and evil, uh, but I'm not ruling out that I won't one day again use them.
1: Recently we were talking about flourishing, and as I understood you see that as some sort of value, or Mm -hmm. goal, or Mm -hmm. pursuit, uh, long-term pursuit, Mm -hmm. or merging with long-term goal. Mm -hmm. In seeing that in this way, meaning putting some value on, on flourishing, do you see almost necessary emergence of evil out of some sort of opposite? How how do you think about that?
0: So, I would say that decay is part of flourishing. So, by pursuing flourishing, I'm also pursuing decay. Uh, this... Has imbalance? Um, not necessarily, but the way things appear to me at the moment, whenever things grow enough, they they are eventually cut down and and they decay, Um, and that's part of the overall flourishing, in a way. Um, So, I guess what I've been struggling with, and the reason why I favor flourishing is sort of aligning myself as a value with all life and the thing that i have been struggling with is there's this underlying feeling like there is some big war or or conflict um i mean there's At any given point, there's like a million conflicts. There's some conflicts going on in my body right now. (laughs) Many of them, I'm sure, thousands. Uh, And I'm part of many other conflicts that are going on. But every time I look at those conflicts, I go like one layer up, and it's not a conflict. Like the, the conflict is part of cooperation somehow. But there is some... Layer, and that layer to me is like uh, the broadest possible layer is, is life and underneath that I don't know I don't know if there's no conflict there or if there is a conflict there so I don't know if all of life is fighting something and if underneath that life fighting something there is some sort of cooperation going on
1: Would it wouldn't it mean that life is everything? If there is life and non-life, let's mm-hmm. say non life is entropy, mm-hmm. then entropy in some way would be enemy of life mm-hmm. and decay would be uncontrolled, decay would be final and total. If we uh-huh. if we assume that entropy is in prison and it's it's endangering life on mm-hmm. the long term mm-hmm. and endangering flourishing. Do you think that entropy in this form would be some sort of evil? Entropy that leads seizure of all, all life, uh-huh. not just decay that causing long term flourishing as in waves mm-hmm. or some some points on the on the all all possible modalities of life, but complete disappearance of that. I.
0: So, I guess this is the question that I do struggle with is that I don't. Mm, I can't, I guess, figure out what is. what space they are in. Like, at the moment, myself fighting I can say that I am the space they're in. Um, when there's a war, we can say that humanity is the space that, that war is taking place in. Um, when some animals are killing other animals, we can see that that ecosystem is the space they're taking place in. And I don't understand what is going on with the space that, in this case, life and entropy would be in.
1: Now, this sort of research is emerging. I think rapidly. Mm-hmm. Folks from Santa Fe Institute doing some things on intersection of information theory and searching for life or metrics of life, chemical signatures of life. And just last year, there were a couple papers on that. Uh, the how I understand in the Vegas terms idea that. If we define life as particular threshold of information processing information processing that allows both to save information to, mm-hmm. to, to have memory and to increase the amount of information and use that information to uh, preserve particular stable structures that is life and life defines through information and another spin on that that information is not separate from the unit of carrying information so it's not quite dissolved from the chemical ba- basis of, of carrying information or being like a source of information and if if we'll take this perspective then particular forms of matter are not life they cannot save information in this in this way they are too subservient to entropy, they are too susceptible to entropy. And they don't have these mechanisms to save memories and, and to predict, to increase degrees of freedom, and to process information in more complex ways. Similar as we see how we had all of this life emerging from unicellular organisms to almost like star civilization now, we have constant increasing information and that's what we predict to observe in other places and if it's not that at some threshold it's not life and even if we strip it out from our current understanding of of carbon life how we see it we uh, we could model some other forms but they would need necessarily this information processing so then evil might be the inability to get to that point of information processing and increase degrees of freedom Mm -hmm. and be on the constant move towards entropy without this diversity and degrees of freedom but the tricky thing that as far as I understand physics and I don't understand it that well but the the broadest strokes are that regardless of informational structure All universe is moving towards entropy and the effects of that are irreversible in some way so pockets of increased information and increased increased degrees of freedom will be still removed and in that sense I think it's a block to flourishing how how I I think you understand flourishing Uh, do you think that this is evil in in such model?
0: Uh-huh. I think if there was some sort of permanent end... It is something that... Hmm. So I guess one of the reasons why I think saying something evil is useful is you need to go fight those people over there and you don't have time to explain or you don't have time to study them uh, and you are already strong enough to beat them. Without having to understand them more. Because if you are a certain, if you're a little bit weaker, basically the weaker you are compared to them, the more you need the advantage of surprise. Uh, And, which basically means the more you need to study them before you attack. And so in that case, you can't really think of your enemy as evil. Um, because it'll shut down your ability to understand the enemy. And so now it's another complication on whether I would call it evil. I guess I would have to think that there would be some way, some way to stop this ending that we are close to getting and we need this like push and then I would probably call it evil
1: let's spin it another direction how do you reconcile it with acceptance the part of decay both personal decay and out most fundamental decay of everything could be within this strive for acceptance. So decay of all life, or decay of everything that is known, all awareness is ever existing and in the future could be a part of this exercise in acceptance. Um, and in this model, evil truly would not exist, mm-hmm. because you are part of the fluke on the universal scale. This mm-hmm. this self-emergent system just happened. It, It happened for several billion years Mm -hmm. and it will go away maybe in a couple hundred billion years. Um, And coming to that with acceptance could be one of the solutions, but it automatically, I think, will remove notion of flourishing as the most long-term is flourishing. Uh
0: So I guess the tricky part here is that there is this paradoxical pattern where once you accept something, you somehow you somehow get better at <laughs> avoiding the thing that you are afraid of. <laughs> like um, I guess you know dramatically if you're fighting, if you accept death, it usually means you are less likely to die in that fight. And I notice this kind of thing with many things about acceptance. Um, or, you know, whatever the fear is, accept the fear, and suddenly the the thing that you were afraid of is is no longer a threat, or it doesn't come to pass, Be, somehow, seemingly because of the acceptance. Um... And I, I don't know how to reconcile that paradox exactly yet. It's something like I, I have trouble understanding it. Um, I assume the existence of the paradox means that I am willfully ignoring something <laughs> that should be obvious. But I don't know what it is. Or I assume if I'm ignoring it, I'm ignoring it for some reason
1: In search for meaning there are clear pointers to experiences otherwise that people in concentration camps who Mm -hmm. were accepting death Mm -hmm. were dying the first Mm -hmm. because they lost faith Mm -hmm. and hope Maybe vitality. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're talking about different kind of acceptance? Yeah. So I think
0: there is you know, there's this kind of acceptance of hopelessness that I have found makes everything somehow better. <laughs> uh I don't know when it happened to me, like, two or three years ago or something like that, maybe a little more, um, where more and more I, like, became fine with being hopeless, but being hopeless then allowed me to notice things that are happening in the present so that I don't Things that I would not have noticed before because I was hoping for something to change in the way that I wanted in the future, which made me not notice what was happening right in front of me in the present. And that leads to opportunity. And it's hard for me to say whether in a concentration camp or in some sort of death march that something, like, what the difference is between that acceptance and that hopelessness and the kind of... It may be that you notice you have the strength. Um. Like, maybe if you're on the Batan Death March and, you know, the Japanese soldiers are pushing you along and you have four types of malaria... you notice that oh wait actually i have energy like more energy than i thought i did um it's not as much as i used to have it's not as much as i hoped i had but it may be more than i thought i
1: had there is another angle on that uh, on with research on learned helplessness Mm -hmm. there are observations that people who have subjective feeling that they cannot change things Mm -hmm. so they accept inability for change and some sort of absence of free will Mm -hmm. that causes them to more low energy and depressed and non-vital states Mm -hmm. and in the end to Lower productivity or impact or presence in the world, connectivity and uh, more contracted states of being. Mm -hmm. And I found this notion troublesome for Uh me because for the longest time I don't perceive that I have free will, or mm-hmm. we can argue with hard determinism anyhow, and in that framework if if I'm also somehow secretly subservient to this mode, maybe it stifles my vitality and mm-hmm. ability to do good in the world and be loving and kind and pursue knowledge. And if that's true, there could be or there maybe should be some mechanism to trick yourself in similar way as believing in... in in particular deities or, mm-hmm. or believing in particular supernatural things can increase subjective well-being or give give particular vital forces for people. Although to make it sincerely feels almost impossible. Like to sincerely make this leap of faith, which Kierkegaard does and teaches and kind of half acidly uh, as I as I was always of battling with him, uh, there is this like in the on the edge of leap of faith. There is some deep lie in a way, uh-huh. and transcending that, it feels almost impossible.
0: I feel like this was not a problem in the past. Uh, or I, I don't think it's a problem in many cultures. The and the problem I'm talking about is the problem of thinking that free will means you have no choice or that you have no autonomy. Um, I think in most cultures that have ever lived on Earth, the not the recent ones, and definitely not our like Christian. Uh, heritage but in a lot of other cultures you can choice is like you're on a on a on a on a river like on a you know a floaty like we have been and when the river pushes you to certain parts like through you know maybe a strong current gets you that can be choice like you ju- you just feel it as choice from the inside um, but when you're in the river you're also a part of the river and I think that is very freeing and probably mm-hmm. results in like a bigger feeling of agency I think it's what like people with a lot of conviction and faith have like when i (laughs) see some muslims i think they have that uh but i don't know how to convince people of that besides you probably need those cultures inside you for it to be a possibility at all uh Otherwise, basically, free will is bearing some weight. Like the, the 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 notion of free will, something is resting on it. Something very big is resting on it. And as long as that thing is resting on it, it will not budge. And so you won't be able to experience euphoria. From the choice of hard, the choices that
1: hard determinism gives you. It feels that people with such convictions, and I agree that there could be huge vitality in people with convictions, they still somehow describe it in my experience. Mm -hmm. It's from the perspective of their action. Uh I've never met people who believe that they were moved completely by. Undependent on them, universe mm-hmm. by the hand of God, so to speak. Although theoretically, in in various teachings, there are such such mm-hmm. people, and even in Christianity, mm-hmm. the closest culturally example would be that many priests would say that I'm I'm moved by hand of God and I'm I'm not doing things. But I think internally they are so close to. I'm generalizing, but it feels that they are so close to. Uh, conventional understanding of agency Uh and conventional understanding of agency comes also partially from Christianity where Mm -hmm. your free will should exist in Uh order to make action that is leading you away from sin Mm -hmm. so at least least in Christianity it it feels unreconcilable and in, in Buddhism it seems it's compatible you are moved by by the hand of emptiness and, uh-huh. and by nothingness <laughs> and you are not moved at all and there is no you. And in that case it feels that people who are completely submerged in that state, they are very removed from and that's and that's where we're circling back to this to this problem of mm-hmm. how highly effective people who do good in the world they not go into that place. Because it seems in most cases it converges on sitting in the cave somewhere in in the mountains and contemplating the universe until you die so motionlessly
0: if we look at a lot of the founders of religions they are either sitting in the cave or sitting in a desert or sitting under a tree and contemplating for some significant period of time but then the contemplation results in some sort of explosion in the rest of the world at least explosion of culture that changes everything after it Um, and I suspect that part of the reason why people go up to this edge and don't cross it is because there might be an underlying fear that once you cross the edge you actually... it is some sort of sacrifice Um, and so what happens after that edge may not mean like it may not to the outside world it might look like you are doing so many things you're changing the world you're coming up with completely new ways of 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 changing the world that you would not have before that makes like what you were planning before look like some sort of child's toy but maybe internally it feels like you're just very 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 tiny, almost non-existent, maybe even non-existent. Um, I keep on thinking about like, when I first started surrendering a little bit more during uh, sparring in in fights um, in Brazil, this feeling of like, like I would win and then after winning, there's this very big like disappointment and stuff where it's like, I didn't get to do anything. And I don't, I think we talked about this before, or I told you about this before, like I don't know exactly what that part is that is thinking this, but the thought is there and the feeling is there. like. You know, like a feeling of, of uselessness or or unworthiness almost like if if when like if I don't need to do anything in order to win, then why am I here?
1: That's one of my suspicions, working more with modular theory of mind and multiplicity of selves. that one of the reasons why almost no contemplative practices especially for people who are alive lead to complete enlightenment for the lack of better term because you cannot teach all the parts to be mindful mm-hmm. and some parts remain maybe very deeply hidden and they unearth only under very specific set of conditions environment mm-hmm but you still cannot weed all of them out because there are many of them, and the problem that you don't even know how many there are. And you constantly, I suspect also that you constantly acquire parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some parts might die, and some parts might be acquired, and you're not in control at any given moment. And the very moment you get this illusion that you get all of the parts in awareness, in Mm -hmm. integrated perception of of everything and, and, and being in the moment, then some parts appear and scream at you similar things yep. as, as you unworthy or you ought to suffer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Getting back to pain. Do you feel that in your life you want to maximize it to get more flourishing and growth? How you how you work with that? I
0: I think there's a, a sweet spot
1: of pain and
0: I believe I've come to the point where I can intuitively feel like there's not enough <laughs> and then I go and seek it out. I do something something like I, I somehow find myself in a
1: situation where there is more pain. <laughs> is it deliberate? Do you Choice design the pursuit of pain, or it's more slowy and open? So I think
0: what has happened mostly up till now is that I try to avoid it like everyone else, but it it becomes in suddenly there becomes a pain of a lack of pain. <laughs> and that gets more and more irritating over time. Uh, And then somehow it it outweighs when it hits one some point it outweighs the the other kinds of pain. And I think underneath that there is a feeling. Underneath that there's a feeling that we need information as a collective. And that if I don't do this, someone else will have to. And also, at this very moment, because I'm alive, and in you know whatever situation I'm in, that there's actually no one else that can f- face whatever this specific pain is. And that because it's on my plate, it's it means. It's my job.
1: When you feel that pain, of absence of pain, Mm -hmm. how do you go about finding new pain or measuring it? I think previously
0: it used to be based on the insight I would get from having the pain. Um, now it seems to be moving toward some sort of movement that happens as a result of feeling the pain. And so if I, if I start to have the pain of pain, then like all other pains, uh, there's like a sort of if then statement is like if you notice pain like pay attention pay more attention, listen to it see what's going on Um where in the past and, and still something I do plenty, I like try and ignore the pain Um so I guess the it's just that the the process for going between noticing the pain and then Paying attention to it is a little shorter, whereas before there's like this, you know, there's this long refusal to pay attention to it.
1: How do you learn not just pain or outcomes of that, but do you feel that you can internalize or can be taught by specific people or it's more something that you discover in yourself and trust only from from the feeling of self-discovery or self-experience in some way I think
0: I can learn from other people, and I have learned from other people, markers. Like if you go into the forest and you see to follow a path someone has put spray paint on trees. So, I think I can learn the markers, Uh, but the the biggest learning happens from my own experience. Um, I guess another way to put this is that I learn what to learn from other people, and animals, whatever, (laughs) everything else, but there is some step that seems more internal, more stuff that no one can just transfer into me.
1: Do you have sensation that there are some goals for learning or they arise on its own as bubbling thoughts or other experiences in awareness that you don't have illusion of control?
0: So it, it used to be that I had many goals for learning, uh, you know, I made mean lists, <laughs> I made mean, nine maps and then under, under each node on the mind map would be like a list of skills. Um, and when you had met me, I had gone through Um, a lot of those uh, and then as of like I don't know two years ago or something maybe a year and a half ago I hit the point where it's like oh I actually I kind of stopped paying attention to it but it looks like I have done all the things on the list Uh, so I used to do it that way but now I just feel what I feel and that tells me what I need to learn in a way like the there's some sort of pain i pay attention to the pain the pain sparks some sort of curiosity the curiosity results in learning
1: previously when you were designing lists Mm -hmm. what what informed you in making those lists like how Mm -hmm. how this process was going
0: so I think it is quite simply, and I I think this is actually going on still. It's like, you know, after a party or something, when we start cleaning, um, and you see someone is mopping the floor, someone is uh, wiping down the chairs, someone is taking down um, the balloons, something like this, and then you go, okay, I know this... I sort of know what it's supposed to look like after it's clean what is not being done let me go do the thing that I think no one else will want to do
1: <laughs> in this space when we map it on knowledge or learning mm-hmm. it seems it assumes some goal of clean space or goal mm-hmm. of uh, Perfection, right? At maximum, uh-huh. what is that goal? So, what are those negative uh-huh. spaces that you're trying to fill? At the time,
0: like when I made my last list, um, maybe five or six years, six years ago, um, it was existential risk. Uh, And I guess that was coming out of the transhumanist rationalist values which I suspect are kind of a weird, maybe I hesitate to say the final (laughs) form, but it might be the final form of neoliberal values Uh, before it breaks. (laughs) Or before that set of values gets mostly replaced by another form, in the same way that uh, I guess our we carry our ancestors in us, but we have replaced them in some way.
1: So existential risks—you've seen it as something that people don't look into. Uh, so at, at the
0: time, in the I guess at the time. I saw existential risk of this sort as something the wider population didn't look into. And then of the people who looked into existential risk, the area that I was interested in was something that I felt that they weren't looking into.
1: What are some other examples of uh, I guess see in this perfect or? wholesome picture that had some negative spaces and you wanted to feel so essentially are the lists
0: um, so when I was when I was in the army a lot of things were not digitized and I saw it. <laughs> Oh, there's actually a lot of shit in the army there was a long list in the army of shit that needed doing um, in just like my unit of like you know 200 people um, and then as I started doing that started doing things for the battalion as well um, but as I was tackling those I came upon I guess one of the fundamental things was noticing the number of people Around me, who had vast capacity and potential that was not being, like, nowhere near being used. Like, if their capacity is at a thousand, say, maybe only ten of that was used. Um, and so that was definitely, that probably fed into my later lists uh and it i think it's probably a fundamental thing about how i view things today is the this this annoyance like you have all these people out there and they can do so much like a much bigger range of things and they're not allowed or they're not doing them
1: So list would consist with things that you want to teach those people or how it connects?
0: So the list in this case would be like, what can I do to let them use more of what they have? Um, I guess before that, I kind of just wanted to do what I liked doing already, which was like reading a lot of history and mythology and things like that. Um, But I felt somehow that I was in a space that did not have space for those things. Um, And so I came up with, I guess, ideas about what the equivalent of cleaning the toilet would be. And at that time, when I was like a teenager, I thought I would go into politics. Because that seemed like a space where the people who were in it were not seeing many things. And that the people who were seeing things didn't have any interest in going into politics. Uh, So when I was a teenager, I thought about that. (laughs)
1: And the list would consist of things that will help you to get into politics. Yep, mm-hmm.
0: and, and not just like in general, but like what I specifically thought would would help and what would be needed in politics that wasn't around at the time. Or wasn't around as much as I perceived was would be more useful or
1: would be more good. Was it the first list?
0: I don't think so. I think the first list was like. Become. Impervious to a loss of friendship. And get rid of all my obligations and debts.
1: There would be skills in that list.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like ways to make money, <laughs> ways to, uh, I guess, yeah. for some reason, <laughs> <a> lock picking <laughs> was part of that. Uh, having a sense of fashion, or style, um, fighting of some sort.
1: You touched friends, what's the, if we get, tied together values and close people, mm-hmm. not just like, let's not put any labels, any sort of closest people, mm-hmm. the, do, the value of flourishing, would you put it as your value, as, as something that you temporarily aspire to? Uh,
0: I yeah, I would say it's it's it is a value I'm keeping in mind more than most other values at the moment.
1: Given flourishing and balance, as I understood temporarily, Mm -hmm. on this map, what closes people? What role, what value closes people? play in your life now? So in a sense I believe
0: all my values come from my closest people. Uh, It's just that I try to take all their values and mush them together (laughs) to determine what my values are, um, and that means not just what they say, but what they do, and my perception of the history of like how they came to do what they do, or how they came to value what they value, um, and then finding the the commonality there, and then coming up with value, a value based on that. Uh, And I guess in the point of view of balance and flourishing, how they play a part is that I believe I need all of them, like I'm interdependent with them for flourishing, Um, and that they are also relying on me in whatever way for their flourishing and that everything I do impacts their flourishing. Um, And then... with balance, it's similar. Like, if I'm balanced, it'll be easier for other people to be balanced. But also, I have to pay attention to... everyone else... so that I can be balanced. Like... For example... If suddenly all my closest people were really into fighting um, and they were really into uh, watching for conflicts um, and they read a lot of history and they read a lot of religious stuff, I would probably be doing something else with my time um, or the the, the the weight of it would be different. and. I believe I only do these things because I perceive some sort of imbalance and that I'm trying to bring balance with whatever I'm doing.
1: Do you feel that things like being interested in fighting and conflict coming from your closest people, so that's something that they are looking into but not realizing? Yep. And by close people, do you mean actually people or the, like, the people or a people? Like, do you mean the concept of close people as the source of generating value, or you see in it as result of particular observations of particular people that are actually close to you in the, however you define that?
0: It is a result of the observations of the particular people, and then to map those particular people I have to map as much of humanity as possible if that makes sense not quite like when for me to understand you I find it very useful to try and understand the class of life that
1: you are (laughs) what's what sphere of, of life you take into account? Uh huh. Um, like,
0: for example, it would be useful to know what are what might be a human universal, and what isn't, because then I have a better understanding of perhaps at which layer of you some want or some fear might be, um, because. What's the thing that people consider a human universal? Uh, monogamy is a very easy example. Like most people will consider that some sort of human universal. Uh, most people in the United States, at least, um, until very recently. <laughs> uh, and if I knew you considered that a human universal, but I knew that it did not seem to be, it changes the way I understand you. Because then I would know that in some sort of other environment you might change in that way. And then it also tells me what you value. Because to want to believe something is a human universal that does not appear be a human universal to me that would mean that that belief is doing some work and if we have like you know a bunch of sticks making a house together then I can that that makes it easy to spot like that this is some sort of structure here and then once I feel that it'll be slightly easier for me to find another stick and then another stick the ones that are connected to it and then so on
1: With human universals uh, and your closest people, mm-hmm. do you feel that they, in general, have... What is the relationship between your perception of human universals and, and your closest surrounding? I believe fewer cultural things are human universals than
0: the people closest to me perceive. Basically, there's more breath to humanity, um, or than what I perceive, they perceive.
1: Which is to say, you think people, closest people, are more close-minded in in this ways? In this way, yes, um, or at least that.
0: I guess the way. I would put it is if we return to that thing where you're cleaning up at a party, they're cleaning up stuff around the same corner. Uh, and because they are cleaning, busy cleaning up up, up, up up stuff around the same corner, they can't see the other stuff that is going on, but maybe when they're done, they will see all of it uh, but uh, until they're until they're done. <laughs> is because i'm the one maybe maybe i'm just standing around not doing anything i can see
1: why do you think it's happening like as i understand with this vision comes sensation of clarity like you have higher clarity of what is the broadest space of perception and awareness and some people are more focused on some very pointy details and that makes them um, more confined, more mm-hmm. hyper-specialized in some ways in values or uh, their convictions. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you think it is like? What? What caused you not not to have such constraints or contractions?
0: I think I've had those constraints before. I think they were just broken, like young, like early, over and over again. Um, It's. I think I've spent more time being outside somehow uh, just from moving around, just from being depressed for a long time just from
1: <laughs>
0: jumping around between communities uh, like I don't think the most depressed person in the group has spent as much time holed up as i have in the past um i hold up like there's a part of my life where I, I moved away from almost everyone i knew well actually so this is the issue i've done that multiple times <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's very relatable
0: um and, but on on the time when i was in my early 20s uh, I stopped all communication with everyone I had ever been in contact with, uh, and then I stopped going to school and then I stopped going to work and I just, like, lay on the floor staring at the ceiling like a depressed person for months, um, and I dumpster dived for food and it was, I feel like that's an unusual
1: circumstance. <laughs> For how long did this period last? Six months. When you were 20? 21.
0: 21, around there.
1: How did it resolve itself? Uh, my parents contacted the police, <laughs> in the,
0: in the, and the police eventually found me. And then Stephen showed up one day with my aunt, uh, or yeah, my aunts, one of my aunts, who at the time was living in Canada came all the way from Canada to Texas, found the aunt that went, was in Texas, and then they tracked me down. Um, and then I guess they got, either Stephen tracked me down or they got Stephen too, I can't remember exactly the details there, but Steven also showed up. Um, and so between all of them, I kind of came out of it.
1: They tracked you down as in they decided to engage with police or something like that
0: uh so my yeah so my mom maybe my aunt as well um yeah called the police to find me um and then after the police found me they came like separately weeks later
1: did you have place to live at that time
0: yeah i did It was very, I mean, I was lucky to be able to have the space, but there was, like, nothing in the space except a mattress and cockroaches, uh, and I had a roommate at one point, but it was slightly before this period started, um, and then the, the roommate moved away, but they left some stuff, uh, but it was mostly me alone. With a mattress and
1: and cockroaches, and a laptop. How did you came out of that when when your family showed up? Like, what what do you think changed uh, conceptually, cognitively?
0: I think I sort of thought that if I just, I mean, I wasn't really thinking about it in a very like rational way or anything, but. I think I assumed that no one would notice if I just, like, whatever I was doing, that somehow it would be that I was irrelevant enough that no one would notice. And it may be, I mean, it's hard to say, but it may be that, I guess eventually I would have become homeless, but... I don't know if I would have become suicidal, but I would have at least become perhaps away from society even longer or away from the rest of society outside of people who are transient.
1: Were you consuming information at that time? Not mm, not much. Um,
0: I think I was reading books, like fiction books probably, um, and then toward the end I started gaming again. Like, probably after the cops came, but before my aunts and Steven came, I started gaming again.
1: Did the realization that someone cares for you and coming for you was crucial solution to that you think? I believe so, yep. Did you feel previous attention from Stephen or like other people from maybe that group who showed up? Uh,
0: so I didn't during that time as it turned out his parents were going through a divorce um, but do you mean like before I got to that point, yes, before you got to that point, yeah, so I think i got I got attention from Stephen um, and I got attention like I had a group of friends, Stephen and I were part of the same group of friends, um and I think I rejected them for some reason um, well, probably the reason is I was like after I was like twelve or thirteen, I think I started rejecting people more uh, because I felt rejected by my childhood friends Uh, and I think that pain was like strong enough that I was like like I didn't want to engage in friendship again really Um, but it happened anyway when I moved to the United States just slowly and then at some point I started finding excuses not to be around my friends uh like you know one of the i don't think i ever told them this but like mentally i was like if we're going to spend another day watching dragon ball z i'm not gonna hang out with these people anymore like stuff like that um yeah so i guess there was a tension but i don't think i ever let myself get like i never showed vulnerability probably, or not a lot of it, and I didn't let myself get very close to everyone, even if there was the appearance of closeness.
1: How do you see the value of vulnerability now? Do you think you can be outmost sincerely vulnerable? I think I can usually be one
0: step more vulnerable than mm-hmm. all the people around, <laughs> most of the time. Not all the time, but, but most of the time, um, including
1: showing weaknesses and things that conventionally perceived, and some at some points of doubt, for example, mm-hmm. or contraction of various sorts.
0: Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, There are some times when I probably hide behind words where I can voice the contraction, but I don't have the ability to... Or I prevent myself from having the ability to fully show it. Uh, There's a certain kind of vulnerability that you may see sometimes in people we know where you know maybe they they break something or they they cry like in a very angry way or um you know maybe slamming a door like that kind of vulnerability is not something i have let myself show much it happens sometimes I think there was one time where I did show it uh, and then, like, Danica was very upset and stayed with you guys over at, uh, um, what was the name of that place? (laughs) Garage.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, for like a week or whatever, that was a result of me being vulnerable in a certain way that I don't usually ever show though i might like now as soon as i notice it is there i usually say it but uh, i think that's not the same as showing it
1: do you feel that you could prevent it like a mess for everyone or you are ready to show it to to some people
0: uh There are probably like slightly different flavors of vulnerability that I'm ready to show to different people, but at the moment it seems like it's almost all the same, like I think anyone I've had a sexual history with, I'm more likely to show vulnerability to. Thank you for listening to this conversation. It's yours, and it's ours.